Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. Well, we finally made it. This is the final piece of the puzzle, the last part of our marathon first episode. It's probably worth mentioning at this point that when we started planning our background episode, we thought it would be a single episode of about 45 to 55 minutes. We were wrong. Super wrong. It just didn't work out that way. So our apologies to those of you who bailed on us early. They're they're not actually listening anymore, so there's no need to apologize to them. Then uh, I... (laughs) Right. Well, then I'd like to... Right you are, Andy. Yes. I'd like to extend a warm hug and a thank you then to all of those who, like us, find this subject fascinating enough to spend three episodes on. I noticed you stopped calling them mini-episodes. Yeah, that word just doesn't apply anymore, does it? Well, we can get to reapply here. We'll keep this one short, okay? Sure. Although we have said that before. That's true. This time we might just get it done. Okay, so what are we talking about in this mini-episode, John? Well, we're going to look at the saga as a literary form and discuss how and why they were written. Sounds good. Where are we going to start? How about with the word saga? What does it mean exactly? Now there's an interesting question. I know, that's why I asked. (laughs) Okay, so the term saga, it comes from the Old Norse word, wait for it, John, saga. That's kind of underwhelming. Yeah, a little bit. Well, it's related to the verb segya, which means to say or tell. Okay, so a saga is something that is said or told, like a kind of story. That's right. So you can translate it also like as tale or history if you want to, but saga sounds so much better, doesn't it? And it, it's come to mean something more than any kind of silly English word can really capture. Well, exactly. But even so, it's hard to explain what a saga is. Mm-hmm. When we use the word, most people think of the family sagas. Right? The family okay. sagas, uh, which are called Islendingasogr, or the uh, sagas of the Icelanders. They're a set of about 40 or so stories, depending on who you ask, written in the 13th and 14th centuries about events in Iceland during the settlement period and the early Commonwealth era. So about 850 to 1050. Uh, and if you've listened to the first two parts of our introduction, you already know a great deal about that period. So much that you don't even want to That's absolutely it. right. <laughs> More than you'll ever need. Uh, When people talk about the sagas, this is usually what they mean. Uh, But the family sagas are really just one subgenre under the umbrella of the Old Norse or Icelandic saga genre. Really? He asked knowingly. So how how many other saga uh, saga subgenres are there, John? Uh, Well, the numbers are going to differ depending on who you ask. But you asked me. That's right. So I'm going to say at least six. And in addition to the family sagas, we have the king's sagas, the bishops and saints sagas, the contemporary sagas, the legendary sagas, and the chivalric sagas. And I'm sure there are great Icelandic words to go with all of those. Of course there are. Okay. Uh, the king's sagas, or konungasogur, are built around biographies of Scandinavian kings. Uh, they explore modes of kingship and emphasize historical detail. Most of the king's sagas are set in the era of conversion, So the uh, social and political shifts which occurred in Iceland due to Scandinavian Christianization are also featured. The central king saga is, without question, the 13th century Heimskringla by Snorri Sturluson. Uh, It covers the legendary origins of the Yingling House of Sweden and then the Norwegian kings from the 9th to 12th centuries. Is that where the uh, Yingling Beer Company comes from? No. Yingling Beer was founded by a German family. Their name is Jungling, and it means young man. Okay. I think I prefer the beer. Well, sure, fair enough. I don't have any particular feelings about the Yingling House of Sweden one way or the other. (laughs) 
the bishop sagas, uh, the biskupasogr, are just what they sound like. They're sagas which center on religious men. Most of them are bishops of Scandinavia. Uh, they have a biographical slant rather than a strictly religious focus. So they're less like a saint's life and more like an historical document. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are also some bishop sagas set outside Scandinavia. And a notable example, there's actually a saga of Thomas Becket. Oh, the great hero. That's absolutely right. Then we have the contemporary sagas, and this is where we start getting into the fun of uh, Old Norse and English as related languages. Uh, these are called the Samtimasogr, or the same time sagas. So, such a creative phrase. I know. Uh, a lot of the names are like this. The Biskupasogr for the bishop sagas, the Samtimasogr for the same time sagas. I was like, when, so when are these ones set? Well, they're set at the same time as they right. were written. Same time. So same well, it saves, it saves time and trouble, having to explain. Yeah. Uh, they are indeed set in time close to the period of written saga production, so the 12th and 13th centuries, and they're concerned with the politics and the violence that marked the end of the independent Commonwealth era in Iceland. So most of the extant contemporary sagas are preserved in a compendium, the Compendius Sturlunga Saga, much of it written by Sturla Thorthusen, the nephew of the infamous Snorri Sturluson. Right. In episode 1b, we could have gone into great detail about Sturla Thorthersen and the rest of the the Sturluson clan, uh, but we chose to kind of limit that for you. So you should be thanking us. At the same time, though, the Sturlunga saga is a really fascenating piece of literature. It It is. And Andy, you're very much the expert on this. So I don't know. Uh, Would you care to tell us just a little bit about it? <laughs> you stroke my ego. No, I, I, I think uh, you know John and I did a uh, an independent study in grad school on the Sturlunga saga, and that's where we were spending a lot of our time drinking beer and eating pizza, and just kind of plowing our way through this thing. And it's just, <laughs> it's it's that saga that you need to read if you want to really understand uh, what is going on in the uh, family sagas, because this is our source for the history of the 13th century. Yeah. Um. So it gives us a sense of all those tensions that are going on between the different families, the church and the people, all that kind of stuff. So um, I highly recommend it, and I imagine at some point, uh, once we get through most of the family sagas, that John and I will want to turn to the Sturlunga sagas with this podcast, assuming we're still alive. Right. <laughs> assuming the trend to get through the other 40 sagas first doesn't kill us. Exactly. So go ahead and continue with your oh, uh, sure. your jaunt through the uh, genres of saga literature. Uh, well, our next category is the legendary sagas, or the Fornaldersogr, uh, which are sagas usually of fanciful subjects. They're generally set in a pre-Icelandic Scandinavia. Is this where uh, we get elves and uh, fairies dancing around? Yes. I mean, well, you see a certain amount of supernatural stuff even in the family sagas, but there's really more of an emphasis on it in uh, the Fronaldo saga. Is this, do you uh, think this is a, um, a Celtic influence? We tend to associate a lot of that stuff with, with Celtic literature from the Middle Ages. Um, it's hard to know how much that is just parallel development and how much of it is related. Uh, certainly when we see some of the... Um, the sagas in this category, we see stories that crop up over and over again throughout Northern Europe. Right. Uh, and so that, that connection, that link, or that coincidence, depending on which scholars you read, uh, is something that we're going to have to be exploring over the course of these podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is also an area where we just get, uh, putting the kind of Celtic fairies and wonderlands aside, this is an area where we, we dig into kind of the mythological history of, of the uh, Scandinavian people, right? Absolutely. I mean, there might be a kernel of history in some of the sagas, but there's often not much more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the better sagas in the group parallel medieval English stories. So you get the medieval, the English outlaw legends like Robin Hood, which match up with the saga of An Bowbender, or mm-hmm. the story of Beowulf, uh, which has a parallel in the sa- sa- saga of Hrolf Ladderlegs. Uh, Ladderlegs. And so on. 
I know. Rolf Ladderlegs is a great Yet another name. great nickname. Uh, uh, the most famous of the Fernalda saga is probably the saga of the Volsungs, which is a saga version of the Nibelungen Lied. Yeah, and that's one where I think you, you do see that, that little inkling of history, right? Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, this is telling about the migration period, and uh, it, it sounds historical with the exception of that old dragon and a dwarf and stuff like that, right? <laughs> right, every time you think you've got history, a dragon shows up. Yeah, uh, and every time you think you've got fantasy, a historically verifiable genealogy crops up. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, the the last sort of subgenre category that I want to talk about is the chivalric sagas, or the Rudorosogr, uh, the rider sagas, uh, which is a genre of romances, tales of knighthood. Uh, these are mostly imported from outside Iceland. There are natively produced chivalric sagas, but it's mostly translations of continental texts, uh, Tristram and Isolde, uh, uh, the Arthurian legends. There's even a biography of Alexander the Great. Uh, those sagas, they're highly popular with late medieval readers, but they're less popular with modern scholars, uh, who tend to be sort of dismissive of the group. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, to they, my great so... pleasure, by the way, another Icelandic name for these sagas is Lugasogr, lying stories, lying because they are not true. The, the kind of uh, disregard for these is, is shown in some of the kind of dating of sagas, where uh, I think early critics automatically assumed that uh, Iceland was... Um, once Iceland surrendered to mm-hmm. Norway, they kind of gave up on their own historical sagas, the family sagas, so on and so forth, mm-hmm. and just turned to either translating or producing uh, chivalric sagas from the continents. Right, um, which, that, which we now know is not entirely true. Yeah, not true uh, at all. But certainly uh, more direct contact with the rest of, of Europe led to a kind of influx of new literatures that Icelandic writers could then mine for stories. Right. But, I mean, we know the Icelanders were traveling all over Europe um, Absolutely. throughout their history. And so they would have been coming into contact and mm-hmm. even composing these kinds of things uh, in foreign lands and or bringing those things home and trying their hand at them as, as well. So Absolutely. Not at all something that, that uh, just postdates the, uh, the capitulation. Right. Uh, there are also, aside from sagas, there are some other genres of literature. Uh, we're just going to touch on a couple of them in passing. Uh, we'll talk about the Eddas and the Thatir. Uh, Eddas, uh, the name Edda means either poetics or I edit, or if it's taken literally, great grandma. (laughs) It probably means poetics, Uh, but those are all possibilities for some reason. Uh, They're a collection of poems, myths, uh, structural rules for poetic composition. Uh, There were probably a larger number than survive, but only two of the Eddas are still with us, Uh, both of them produced in the 13th century. They're called the Prose Edda and the Poetic Edda, or sometimes called the Snorra Edda. The Prose Edda is sometimes called the Snorra Edda, likely written or compiled by Snorri Sturluson, uh, the infamous Snorri Sturluson. Yes, our good friend Snorri Sturluson. It preserves the legends of the pagan gods of Scandinavia in a text called the Gilfaginig. And that's another text that at some point we should probably dedicate an episode to. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, the second and third parts of Snorra Edda move on to a uh, discourses on the construction of poetic metaphor. Uh, the Poetic Edda, sometimes also called the Elder Edda, is a collection of myths and legends concerning the gods and heroes of Scandinavia uh, and a collection of uh, other poetry. It's contained in the Codex Regius, uh, which is just a manuscript title. Uh, some scholars have suggested that Snorri compiled this one too, but there's less evidence for his involvement with this text than with the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, we have our Thotter, uh, the brief tales or short stories. Uh, there are a large number of these in Icelandic. Uh, some estimates are that over 200 of them survive, depending on what you classify as a different story versus a different version of the same story. Right. 
Uh, a lot of these of the, are they're, they're pretty short and, and very entertaining. Oh, they're fantastic. Nice um, little glimpses into daily life or adventures. Well, some of them are essentially extended anecdotes, right? yeah. uh, more or less a joke, usually at the expense of an outsider. There's usually a sort of troublesome Icelander who's um, being a wise guy in the court of a Norse king right. or uh, while traveling abroad. Uh, Avun and the bear is a great example right. of that. Um, traveling but, around with a polar bear. Right, right, which he refuses to give to a king that asks him for it. But really, others are other thought here are really just sort of short versions of sagas. The distinction really isn't a very firm one. Uh, some of the stories, uh, Bully Bolison's Tale or Alehood, are called sagas by some writers or some scholars and thought here by others. Uh, but then you have sagas like Ravenkill Saga or Bandamana Saga, which are no longer than some of the thought here, but are universally accepted as sagas. The distinction is chiefly one of subject matter. A thotter is concerned uh, primarily with a single episode or event, while a saga tells the life story of a person or a family or a region of Iceland. There's actually been relatively little work done on these as stories in their own right, uh, which is why I'm being a little bit vague in my language. And most (laughs) readers have tended to treat the short stories as insufficiently advanced sagas, sort of saga seedlings that were cast onto rocky soil and failed to take root. Uh, But uh, Joe Harris at Harvard um, has done some excellent work in delineating the genre's properties and establishing a working definition of the thotter as a literary form in its own right. And he's also a very nice guy. <laughs> so when I think of, I mean, just that long list there, you look at medieval Iceland and you think, man, these guys produced <laughs> a lot of literature. And it's all really around a 200-year span, right? Late 12th century is the, the rough beginning of this stuff. And then it goes into the mid-14th century. That's it. Yeah, and if we narrow the field just to family sagas, there's still 40 or more written during that time. When you add everything else in, it becomes kind of overwhelming. Yeah, especially when you consider they're also writing detailed histories, the saints' lives, a lot of other standard religious texts the medieval church loved so much. And Well, let's not forget the legal texts. There's lots and lots of legal texts. Right, right, and multiple versions of La Namabok. I don't know where they found all this time. Well, watching sheep graze isn't all that time-consuming. <laughs> Although it does explain where all the sheep hide went. I mean, they, they had to That's take the right. parchment like, for all we, this. We need more paper. Yeah, they, yeah, exactly. So on top of all that, they're also churning out translations of popular continental literature, both secular and ecclesiastical. Right, and I think, um, if, I, if memory serves, uh, Tristan's Saga uh, is which is an adaption of the Tristan and Isolde legend, uh, it's the only surviving example of Thomas of Britain's Tristan. Good for you, Icelanders, preserving that text. <laughs> So now we're sounding like literary scholars, aren't we, John? Oh, well, we, we, we aim to please. Yes. Although I don't really know if that's pleasing to anyone but us. No, no, it's just <laughs> us enjoying that bit. So uh, we're not the only ones that are amazed by the industriousness of the Icelanders. You don't say. I do say. The historian Saxo Grammaticus, which is an awesome name. I should have named my son Saxo. That would have been cool. It's not too late. <laughs> just Does he know his name. own name yet? Yeah, yeah, he knows it, but we could convince him. Well, you know, so, I've got another son on the way. Maybe <laughs> There you go. You name him Saxo. I'll talk to my wife. So Saxo is this 13th century historian. I think he's Danish, right? He described the Icelanders as the historians of all Scandinavia. That's right. It certainly fits because the 13th century is the age of saga writing. Yeah, it's also the age of chaos and violence, if you remember. I guess they were really good at budgeting their time between killing each other and exploiting the poor. <laughs> so Saxo, if I can call him Saxo now... He says that the Icelanders were able to get so much writing done simply because of the long winter nights, which are so uh, long 
and dark, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he's saying there just wasn't much to do in Iceland. I'm sure the saga authors would take issue with that statement. Probably, probably. It's nearly as insulting as our sheep joke. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I know that we see the issue addressed by actual Icelanders every once in a while. Um, there's this book of Thorther, which is a revision, uh, later revision of the Lannama book. And the author there notes that the inspiration behind family sagas lies in that very common human desire to know one's origins. Yeah. I think one of those versions of the Lannama book also talks about their desire to prove that they are not, contrary to Norwegian rumors, descendants of slaves and criminals. Hmm. Sound familiar, Australia? Where are your sagas? <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know the two Americans really have any call to be getting snippy with others for a lack of uh, an historically meaningful national literature. <laughs> Besides, all that sounds so noble, the, the common des- human desire to know one's origins. Yeah, it does, it does. But that can't be the only reason for the obsession with origins and the constant outlining of genealogical record in the family sagas. Absolutely not. We have to be, and this is, we have to be careful at this point, not to confuse the sagas with actual history. Yeah, that's a big problem that scholars and fans of the sagas have had to contend with for a very long time. Mm-hmm. It's easy to think of the Ridarsogar, the Fornaldasogar, uh, the lying sagas, in other words, as works of fiction. But, yeah, it's in the name, right? Right. I mean, it's, you know, it sort of uh, telegraphs it for you. But uh, an extension of that is the family sagas read so convincingly that it's tempting to take them seriously as history. Uh, in fact, they were largely read as historically accurate until about 1940. Uh, when Sigurdr Nordahl argued persuasively that Hravenkill's saga, which had been thought of as being among the most accurate of the sagas, was rife with historical impossibilities and with literary inventions. Which pretty much killed the idea of treating the sagas as pure history, didn't it? Well, yeah. With, with a few exceptions, that's more or less the case. Uh, the people who believed Nordahl's argument eventually formed two schools of thought. Uh, one group, the Free Prosists, held that an oral tradition had been transmitted into the sagas and could still be detected in the way the sagas were constructed and composed. Uh, and those of you who have done uh, English degrees will have, may have heard about something called oral residue, which always sounds so unpleasant to me. It sounds like you haven't been brushing your teeth enough. It sounds pretty But gross. it means uh, the uh, detectable results of an orally transmitted text that has finally been written down. Orally transmitted sounds bad, too. That does actually sound pretty bad, doesn't it? There's really no way to discuss this without sounding sort of like a have got disease. some orally transmitted um, residue all over me. <laughs> The orally transmitted literature. Uh, Yuck. The, uh, well, the, the free prosis group, uh, while not holding to the old historical line, uh, are still likely to seek a link to the past in the sagas themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second group is called the book prosists, and they argued that the sagas were largely, if not entirely, an invention of their authors in the 13th century. Uh, and this group argued that the sagas could be seen to fit a formal literary pattern and so uh, betrayed a kind of uh, uh, artificial creation rather so, than the reception of a traditional literature. So the book proses don't believe in any historical link at all? Sort of. Uh, it might be more accurate to say that they saw the texts as literary creations looking back on an imagined history, while the free prosists saw the sagas as being the final step in a process, wherein the sagas went from oral stories originating in the past into a final written form. Probably in modern times, we tend to combine the two things a little bit more, right? It's not as controversial. Well, and I think, honestly, um, in both in Anglo-Saxon studies, which is another area that we tend to work in, uh, and in Icelandic studies, there has been this tendency now to uh, move toward historicity, right? what the sagas right. can tell us about what they thought history was. Exactly. Uh, and that's and one not of the... necessarily making this clear distinction that if it isn't historically true, 
that it means that it wasn't thought to be historically true. Mm-hmm. And when, when we're looking at any work of fiction, but in, in particular sagas, uh, one of the things we have to consider very carefully is when was it written and by whom? Well, yeah, but that becomes a little problematic with the sagas. Yeah, it does, unfortunately, especially since a lot of the cases, in a lot of the cases, the saga author remains anonymous. And they don't post copyright dates on the pages. It's very inconsiderate of them, isn't it? Yes. So, for the most part, we've got to use other kinds of evidence, which is both physical or external evidence, and then contextual internal evidence within the text to make a best guess of when a saga was written. And oftentimes, as we said earlier, the sagas are dated to the 13th century. Which is extremely intriguing for me. Like I said, I love that Sturlunga saga. I love that age. There's just so much going on. It's the time of greatest political upheaval. So there's nothing quite like rolling up your sleeves and digging into a saga to figure out what exactly the author's trying to say about the period in which he lives. Right. Yeah, it's just more interesting for me that way than if we just looked at the sagas as simple, factual accounts of Icelandic history. If you think back to our previous episode, where we covered the rise of the Storgothar and the decline of the Commonwealth, you can imagine all that an Icelander might want to say about his experiences in that time. And we only scratched the surface of what's really going on there. We barely spoke about the tensions between chieftains and free farmers, the hostility between the church and the laity, and all that distrust between those who supported Norwegian rule and those who who did not. So these tensions could be and were the inspiration for the drama and intrigue we find in the family sagas. And hopefully we'll talk a lot about that as we go through the um, sagas of the Icelanders. Um, I know we recorded the Hrafnkel episode before we did this stuff. And so there's, you know, now that we've gone through this whole history lesson. And allow us to assure you in advance that it's brilliant. It's still good. Uh, But there's a lot of stuff that we uh, cover in that episode that allows us to see so much more into that saga. Well, and it's important to understand that even though these sagas are very tightly narrated and tightly designed, that's not to say that what the authors are reporting is entirely fabricated. Right. I mean, we generally look at the Lanama book and take it at face value as a, as a work of history. Yeah, within reason. Right. So when we compare that historical, quote-unquote historical text to the sagas, we find a lot of overlap in terms of character, genealogies, and even major episodes. So if the Lanama bulk is taken to be roughly true, why wouldn't the episodes reported uh, in the sagas be true as well? Right. I mean, there are some discrepancies, of course, but really there's a remarkable degree of agreement between the sagas and the historical documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably a good example of where to draw that line, though, comes from how we think about Njal's saga. If you're not familiar with Njal, it's essentially it's a story about a, uh, a series of feuds uh, loosely centered around a famous lawyer from the late 10th, early 11th century named Njal Thorgerson uh, and his family. Uh, and it ends, or, well, it doesn't end, but uh, one of the great climaxes of the story is when Njal and nearly his entire family are trapped within a, in a farmhouse, which is then set on fire, uh, destroying most of the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here's the thing. The Lannama book confirms that there was a guy named Njal and he lived where the saga says he lived, and he had a reputation pretty similar to what the saga reports. It even confirms that he was burned alive in his house. But that's it. Right. I mean, the saga author takes, I guess if you look at this, he takes an outline of the event, or a skeleton, if you will, of Icelandic history from the Lanama bulk, and then he tries to flesh it out. So rather than simply reporting the chronicle narrative, the saga author provides us with details and emotions and backstory that help breathe life into the characters and their motives. 
Doing this allows us to really understand and appreciate the moment much better than we would when just reading a chronicle. Right. And it's important to note, um, so as we're coming toward our conclusion here, that the sagas have continued to be deeply important to Iceland as a nation. And to us, of course. Well, of course. Uh, The the full body of literature in the saga writing age, uh, and especially the family sagas, are essentially the national literature of Iceland. Uh, In fact, to a great degree... They are the national identity of Iceland. Uh, most of the manuscripts were taken. This is post-medieval. Most of the manuscripts were taken from Iceland in the 17th century. Uh, they were given in a, in a series of gifts to the then king of Denmark. Uh, but with Iceland's return to independence during World War II, there came an increased insistence on the recovery of the texts from Denmark. There was a lengthy diplomatic debate uh, between Denmark and Iceland, um, and even one threat of war. Uh, before a, an eventual debate was held between uh, scholars acting on behalf of both Iceland and Denmark, uh, big names uh, on both sides. Uh, Sigurdur Nordahl was one of the speakers for Iceland. Paul Anderson, the writer and scholar, was one of the speakers for Denmark. Uh, and in the end, the decision was made that Iceland had primary claim to the saga manuscripts. Uh, since 1971, most of the texts have been restored to Iceland. They are usually returned with a military escort, uh, many of them are now kept in Reykjavik at the Arne Magnuson Institute, uh, and they really are kind of a set of foundational texts uh, for the country. Mm-hmm. It's a national treasures, if you will. Yeah. Well, I will. Right. <laughs> um, and so will I. And, uh, well, that brings us to the end of this discussion, very much the shortest of our three primary, uh, primary yes, episodes. Yes, we, we had told each other to let keep this one under 30 minutes and i think we might have just succeeded in that one excellent um it's so time that's progress for us absolutely um so if you've listened to all three of these thank you very much uh if you it. haven't listened to all three of them feel free to go back and listen to the other two or you can jump ahead to our next episode where we cover hrafenkel saga this is our first full episode where we put a saga of the Icelanders on trial, and it is a it'll give you a better sense of what we're up to in this podcast than what you've heard so far If you are interested in maybe reading that saga before you listen, you can follow our link on the website at sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, and it'll take you to Amazon where you can purchase the book. It's a thin volume and uh, quite affordable and a good read. Um, You can also see on that website links to the bibliography that John and I use to prepare these three massive episodes. Uh, That's strictly for those of you who are interested in digging a little deeper into Icelandic history. Uh, also, make sure to follow us on Saga Thing Pod at Twitter and Saga Thing Pod on Facebook. So, for now, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye for now. <laughs> now you're just fing with me. I was trying to fill the emptiness. <laughs>